Essentially, what we have here is an approach to life. And we want to know as Christians how to approach life in such a way that at the end of our life, we will know that we have lived it well. But we don't want to wait until we're 65 or 70 or 75 or 80 or 90, whatever period of time God would give us on this earth. What we want to know is that we're going to live in such a way when we're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, in other words, we still have time left to live on this earth, that we're going to spend the rest of our time approaching life in such a way that it will guarantee the outcome when we come to the end of our days. So that we will then be able to look back on a life well lived, but we knew it beforehand. In other words, we would know it back here, that by the things that we are doing, the way we're responding to life, that our life will be well lived. See, it isn't like, I wonder whether I will win or lose, whether I'll rise or fall, whether I will succeed or fail. You can know that right now. You can know it starting today. You can know that every day. And you can know that you are sowing such seed in your life today that will guarantee the outcome tomorrow. This becomes a vitally important thing so that each day I go out, I say, well, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what my tomorrows hold, but I do know who holds tomorrow, and he's working right today. And so I'm going to respond to today. So if you'll all bow your head with me in a word of prayer, then we'll begin this message. Heavenly Father, pray now in the name of Jesus for your guidance, because this word is your word. It is your word directly to us. It is your word through your prophets. But we remember when you sent Christ into this world, it was you speaking in him. And then through your apostles by the Holy Spirit speaking through them. So this is not an ordinary word, Father. It is your word. For holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so take this word then, Lord, and cause it to come alive for us today. Make it a living teaching, direct from your heart to the hearts of your people, using me as an instrument, Lord, but knowing it is the Holy Spirit who is the teacher and the instructor to all of us, Father. Now, Lord, we submit this to you and request it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, now, with that basic concept in mind, we said there are two basic perspectives we must have. And it's really a totally long-range perspective, but one seems like a short-range perspective. Now, the long-range perspective is this, that we have as the goal of our life what I call purpose and vision. We've discussed that enough that I don't need to go into that at any length now. Purpose and vision. That God is the center of our lives, that we are living and are dying. We're set to glorify Him and love Him forever. That's our, our deliberate choosing as the aim of our lives. And then in that, that works out through the vision part that we desire to be one with all of God's people and certainly the place where we're going to begin being one is right here where we are among ourselves. This is a congregation of people that God has uniquely put together for the specific purpose of working out those things in our life. In other words, it is so easy for people to say, I can't stand my neighbors, so I'm leaving humanity, and henceforth I'm going to work for the good of all mankind. See, well, that kind of mentality is this twisted thing, I can't get along with this person, but somehow I will work for the good of all mankind, like mankind is different from my neighbor, or I'm going to work for the unity of the church, and I can't get along with anybody in the local congregation. Well, then something obviously is wrong. 
This is where I start working out those great things that we will later do if we do work those things out. Secondly, we are going into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. Now again, the same principle. There are so many people with desires. I wish to be a missionary, and I wish to go to the ends of the earth, and I see myself in foreign lands and jungle places and villages preaching to the saints, to the last sinner. But do we preach to our neighbor? Are we a part of the church evangelism program? Are we reaching out because of a heart of love and we are witnessing to the lost? See, all of the rest of it is like playing with words. If I don't do it here, I won't do it there. This is the learning place. This is the learning ground. That's why we're taking our brother Mike Becker and the other evangelists and say, exercise your gifts upon the people that they may learn those things. Because without that, the mighty ongoing work of the Holy Spirit will not take place. In other words, the long-range purpose will not be valid at all. Then the third thing is we learn to manifest the life of Christ, both individually and corporately. So we're saying as an individual, how may I take Christ to the community? How may I manifest the love and nature of Christ? Secondly, how may we corporately as a church, a body of people, manifest Christ in this community? See, sometimes what I cannot do individually, like I can maybe help a poor person, or I can help a battered wife, or I can help an orphan, or I can... But the church can help many. So the church then, corporately, must be into manifesting the life and the love and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the long term. Because in that experience then, that desire to manifest that glorifying God, we are told in the New Testament to exalt Christ to know Christ. So our aim then is to know Him. Now, the knowing of Christ, however, depends on God's dealing in our life on a daily basis. See, knowing Christ is not the result of, like, quiet moments alone with the Lord, although that's vitally important in knowing Christ. But that alone will never do it. Or just reading the Bible. Say, I read the Bible and I know Christ. No, that helps us to know about Christ. But again, it is the experiences that we come to experience in our daily walking as God sends things into our life and how we respond to them, how we manifest compassion, how we stand up under tests and trials that causes us to experience the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you then that when we respond rightly and move along in a higher and higher plane, then at that time, God will send along perhaps a dream, a vision, a revelation, a word from someone which more specifically shows us what we should be doing. Should we be apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, helps administrations, government, labor in this place, should we be in that place? See, he begins to show us specifically. Like all Christians start out in the general place. We have lessons to learn. But as we get a little along in the Lord and really have mastered those lessons, then he opens up like a specific revelation and says, here's the channel I want your life to take then we begin to understand what God wove into us in our mother's womb. But it's all dependent, again, on us handling rightly the daily things that come into our life. Because what we must believe is that these things are either sent there by the direct will of God or the permission of God, and they're there for a purpose. And today, we're going to examine the qualities the reasons why God sends those things into our lives and what they're meant to do. Now, remember, he sends things, he allows things. The things he allows many times are 
the result or out of a heart of evil, not God's heart, but it is Satan who launches an attack against us or evil men and women who launch an attack against us and they're out to destroy us, to ruin our testimony, to destroy our reputations, to kill us if possible. See, I mean, evil is launched against us. You say, how would God allow that? Well, I hope to make it clear that there's a reason for that, a vital reason. And it's not the evil that comes against us, it's how we handle the evil that comes against us that produces these tremendous qualities in our life. And the other side are the things that God deliberately sends. All of these things, both the evil that's allowed and the direct working of God in our lives, are designed to work into us qualities without which, when he gives us a revelation, we would never be able to carry out that revelation. If these qualities are not in us, the Bible says, and increasing, we are not able to carry out that revelation that comes to us. So then these qualities then, and others that I won't mention here, I'm just giving some pretty basic things. I hope that you'll get excited enough to go study for yourself. That you, you want to get into it, or your elders then will be in to say, let's research this together in the church and the home. Let's see what these qualities are that God wants to build into our lives. Now, the first one of these qualities then that I want to deal with here today is the quality of perseverance. Now, we're going to take a look at some scriptures, but I want to give you some understanding about perseverance and how it's developed in the Christian. But first of all, a definition. It means steadfastness. Now, we're looking at the Greek meaning of the word which these words come from. It means steadfastness. So that when we're marching along in a certain way toward a certain goal, we're steadfast in our approach to that goal. We are not easily moved, and in fact, we cannot be moved at all. The Bible says, when we're in our battles with Satan, having done all to stand, stand. See, that quality is the quality of steadfastness, the ability to stand up. The Greek has another word also, same word, but another way it's used in a different way. It says the same thing, constancy. Now, many people are erratic in their moves toward God. They're on fire with God, then they're suddenly cold, and then they're lukewarm. God said, I'd rather have you cold or hot. See, if you're cold... You're a dead sinner. If you're red hot, you're on fire for him. But lukewarm, we're nothing. Now, some people not having constancy literally revert back, and I've seen this, where some people during a red-hot revival, they get saved and are on fire, and that lasts for a week or two. Then some testing or trial comes along, and then they backslide. You never see them until the next revival. Some people are on fire for God, and then gradually they cool off, and everything that you talk to them about doing in God, ah, well, I've done it. I'm not into it. Oh, I've heard that before. Yeah, I've heard. Oh, I know all about that. I don't need to hear that. I know. They're lukewarm. They have no constancy. Constant means, like you say, something has a constant temperature. So you set it at 70, and that thermostat, let's say, holds it at that temperature. Or you say you must hold a constant speed. Then that means you set it at 55, and if you have a speed controller, it holds it steadily at 55 miles an hour, whatever that speed would happen to be, if constancy is the important thing. And in Christian life, constancy is the important thing. Steadfastness is the important thing. Endurance. Now, we don't have to go into that too much, I wouldn't think, 
because endurance is just simply the quality to put one more foot in front of the other. What makes great marathon runners? Endurance. Their lungs are burning, their legs are tired, their head is aching, they want to stop, but they keep moving along. What makes a great runner? He started out someplace in a short distance runner, and he's begun to run, and pretty soon he's going through the same experience. But there's that line down there that he has to cross, and he wants to win. And so though he's tearing himself up inside physically, something within him says, move on. See, even the world sometimes understands this. It says if you can make one heap of all your winnings and lose it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose again and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on. See, there's the quality. So hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. That's the quality. That's what he's speaking about here. The ability to just keep moving ahead no matter what. Oh, somebody said something to me. That's it. I'm through. I'm, I'm all done. That's the end of it. I, no, hold on. That person that came into your life and said that, that was for a reason for your development. That's good for you, not bad for you. If you learn to respond to it correctly. So perseverance. New Testament. The characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Greek meaning of the word. A man unswerved by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Jesus gave us that example of the cross with all of its terror. And he stood up to that because that's what his father sent into his life. And he said, shall I say, Father, deliver me from this hour? No, for this purpose I came forth. He had an unswerving constancy of purpose that moved him toward that cross and threw it out the other side. It says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And see, when you go through that, now those are the qualities that have to be developed. It means a second meaning, a patient, steadfast waiting for, speaking of Christ's return. You remember he speaks in the New Testament? He said, there's those souls that say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginnings of the world. But it says, but Christ will come. And it says, you continue to look for him. If you lose that, oh, I don't know, he's not coming. Oh, I don't think, I don't know. He, you know, you hear about this, there's always wars and all that. He's not coming. So that's exactly when many of the servants began to leave off and go eat and drink and get drunken with their fellow servants, says Christ will come in a day they do not expect him. Therefore, he said, watch and pray always. See, constancy. I am enduring until he comes. All right. It means expectation and hope. Now, if you would like to turn with me, take your Bibles now, and we're just going to read some of these scriptures. I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Luke 8. And we're going to read verses 10 through 15. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see. Now you're going to see why they can't see. And hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And he was describing a situation which will be familiar to all of you in a moment. And those beside the roadside are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, some who hear the word just don't believe it. 
But now there's a tragic class, two classes of people, that is tragic. Let me read about these tragic classes of people. And then one class goes on to great victory. This class says, And those on rocky soil are those who, when they hear the word, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. No firm root. No constancy of purpose. No determination of heart. See, and when temptation comes, they fall away. But the Bible says in James, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into manifold temptations. Now that word temptation, when I speak to you about it a little bit later, when I take up James and read that scripture to you, I'm going to show you what that word temptation means. It has an evil connotation to it in most uses in the Greek New Testament and in Greek literature. It's used occasionally of God when he's testing to bring forth evil and good to light. But it is used continuously of Satan in his solicitations and temptations to evil. That's what the Bible is talking about here. Now, it says when temptations come, they fall away because they have no root. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Now, what is the quality lacking? It wasn't that they didn't believe. The Bible says they did believe. They believed that they were sinners and they repented of sin. They believed that Jesus was Lord and they accepted Him as Savior and Lord. See, I mean, all of the words. Yes, I believe He's the Lord. I believe He's my Savior. I believe that I sinned. I believe all of those things they would have said. You would have heard them say, Hallelujah. They found the Lord. They have. But it says something got in there. Because something was missing, something was lacking, a quality was not there. Now verse 15. And the seed in the good soil are the ones who have heard the word, and in an honest and good heart hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. Now there's that word. What was the difference between them? Not did they believe, not even did they understand. But the two that failed are those who had no perseverance. And the ones that succeeded are those whom the Bible says they bear fruit with perseverance. Now let's read Luke 21, verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. King James says, by your endurance, you'll possess your souls, or by your patience, you'll possess your souls. But that word, if you have a King James Version, in the Greek, the word is clearly endurance. There's a different word for patience, like, be patient now, don't, don't get excited. Different word for that. This word here is persevering endurance. By your persevering endurance, you will gain your life, or you'll save your life. It isn't saved by... See, it's like, well, the Lord has saved me. Exactly right. But also you must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is a co-working in God that He begins sending things into our lives and depending on how we respond to this, we will either gain the fullness of what God intended for us or we will always be at this starting point and never getting off first base at all. Never making a home run. Never making a touchdown. Never making any real score that counts in this world at all for God. We'll always be at the starting point, always wondering why. Why hasn't God done this? Why did God do this for him? You'll find out the quality, the different quality. 
between those who succeed are the qualities that I'm talking about now. They have perseverance in the spite of all kinds of hits and knocks and wounds and outrageous things that happen to them. They just keep moving on. And they fall seven times, the Bible says, the righteous fall seven times. He rises again. He doesn't turn around and leave and go to something else. Now Romans 15, 4 and 5. So you'll find this all as you begin to study this astounding references to this tremendous subject. Romans 15. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, two things. There is, oh, the Scriptures encourage me. That's right. But it says another thing must be there through perseverance and encouragement of the Scripture. Not just Bible reading. The quality of perseverance must be developed. Now may the God who gives perseverance... Now we're going to examine later on, though, how he gives it. See, it's God who gives perseverance. Men don't develop perseverance. I'm going to develop perseverance. I'll repeat to myself, I will persevere, I will persevere, I will persevere. That isn't going to do it. That might help you along the way if you understand how perseverance is really developed. It might have some value to you because it put it in your conscious mind. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Same tremendous quality. Second Corinthians... 6.4. But in everything, he's speaking now of a minister. I see ministers give up because same lack of quality has been developed. Tremendous anointing. A little pressure come. Backslide. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, there's that word perseverance again, afflictions, hardships, distresses, beating, imprisonment, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger, purity, knowledge. What is the precede? What is the quality goes before all of them? Endurance. Because if you don't have that quality developed, listen to this. Afflictions. Are you going to stand up when the afflictions come? Oh, God, I can't handle it. I tell you the truth. I see many times in my dealings with Christians and many times in dealing with some of yourselves, and much to the pain of my own heart, because I know that you've got to master this quality, or you simply will not gain what you need to gain. But when afflictions come, instead of standing up to it and winning in that battle, you begin to fight and kick and just yell and scream, and I can't handle this, what's going to happen? I'm going to... And somebody has to try and, like a baby again, just comfort you and just hold you, oh, your poor baby. Instead of at some place where the person can stand up and say, Dad, I can handle it too! Mom, I can handle it too. I've been watching you, and I see what you do, and I can handle it. See, that quality has to be developed. I've had it. This is what's going to be. I'm through. I just, oh, I just... And scream. I've heard just screaming. No, I won't. I won't. I won't live like this. No one can make me. I won't do it. See? Say, okay. You don't have to do it. But 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when others have moved on mightily in God, and they're blessed and... You'll still be down here groveling in grade number one because that quality has to be developed. See, being a success in God is not like some great secret. It's something anyone can do. Why do men fail? Not because God's not on their side. Not because the devil can do anything to them. Because they will not co-work with God to develop that quality of endurance, steadfastness, constancy. 
toward that goal. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He talks about the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. And I looked at that and I said, that's an odd thing. See, it's like you have this gift. God gives you a gift to heal. You walk out and you do healings. and man, that's a, There it is. It's all there. No, it said the signs of the apostle were worked among you with perseverance. There must have been some pressure against him to get him to stop doing whatever those signs were. Something that came down, afflictions, trials, beatings, tumults, troubles. In the face of them all, he stood up and worked the signs of an apostle that church might be built and those people might become steadfast in the faith. See, that quality just keeps... Again, shining through just everywhere you look at it. And yet we like to look at, oh, Jesus is sweet and God is wonderful and the blessings of God and His wonder He gives this and love flows and this and that. But what keeps breaking through all of these things is the word perseverance, perseverance, endurance, constancy, courage. That's what produces those qualities. They're not produced like a zap and then you have all these qualities. They're the result of perseverance. Now then, I'd like to give you a definition of two other words here. They're the word testing or temptation and the word trials or trying. Now, if, so we can get this, would you turn over with me now, please, to James 1, verses 2 through 8. And every one of you can turn there. I'd like to see this because we'll spend some time on it to show you an interesting combination how God puts these things together so there can be no doubt what he's aiming at here. Amazing how the Holy Spirit has been able to do this with the language that he had at his disposal. Greek is a marvelous language in that sense to make something clear. James 1, 2 to 8. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces... Somebody give me that word. Endurance. Now, Let's look at these two verses alone here, two and three, and then we'll take the rest in their proper place. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The Greek says all kinds of trials. Now, that word in the Greek is perazzo. That word in the Greek is means to test in the idea of a failure in view. Someone is testing you, that's the primary meaning of it, with the idea that you're going to fail. It's a foregone conclusion in their mind. They want you to fail, and they're going to throw it at you with the idea that you're going to fail. Parazzo. Now, that's this one here in the second one. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various parazzo. Someone, something, some pressure, some being is coming against you and allowed by God to do it, because otherwise you wouldn't encounter them. Allowed by God to do it, and that being is intending to see you fail. Terrific example of that, a clear example, was where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired you to sift you as wheat. You think you want to sift him as wheat so he'd be pure? You want to sift him as wheat so he could destroy him, turn him into chaff, say he's not wheat, he's chaff. But Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith fail not, Peter. That's our hope. Our hope is in Christ because he's developing something. And God would take Peter this weak reed that would be blown about by every little wind, and he would step by step turn him around until he became Peter, which means rock, constant, enduring, able to take the waves and the wind beating against it, and unmoved. And that's what he wants to do with us. 
So here's this scripture here. Count it all joy, brethren, when these things come against you, which are designed by someone to cause you to fail. Someone wants you to fail. They hope you'll fail. The devil's after you, and he wants to show you up and ruin you. Now I say, oh Lord, how can I be joyful in that? Because the Lord's praying for you that your faith fail not. Hallelujah. And that you come through on the other side and you develop something as a result of it. Now, the next word is found in verse 3. And it is not perazzo, but dotemazzo. A different word meaning always generally used of God, never of the devil. The other word is generally used of the devil, never used of God, except in a very few specific cases where he's trying to bring to light evil so he can deal with it. But Satan is trying to bring people to evil so he can destroy them. But now, dokemazo means to test with the idea of approving. To move in your life in such a way because of the foregone conclusion you'll be right. It was used in the New Testament of the testing of money. When a person believed it was a good piece of money, he would test it and say, that's good money. See, a shopkeeper, you'd hand him money, and he'd test it. He didn't want it to be bad money. He wanted it to be good money. So he'd put it to the test and say, that's good money. Here's your merchandise, and I have the money. He wanted it to be good. That's like God with you. He wants it to be good. He wants you to be good. Now here these two words are. Count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of parazzo. Satan throwing everything he's got at you to produce evil. But notice the third verse, knowing that the testing. So it's part of God's testing. Even though the person intends it for evil, God intends it for good. Hallelujah. And he allows it to work. Now what's the result? It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now you got faith. Faith is there. You believe. We believe. See, and he says those people that it falls on rocky ground, they believe immediately with joy, but they have no root in themselves. And as soon as temptations come, perazzo, they fall away. Now, on the other hand, he says, you let it work in you. You give yourself to it. You learn to respond to life in a correct way. And he said, you know what it will produce in you? Because of God's hand in your life, it will produce dokemazo, endurance. And it says, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven by and tossed by the wind. See, here's this, no endurance. Oh, I believe. Oh, I don't know if I believe or not. Oh, God, give me wisdom. Oh, he's not going to give me wisdom. See, that kind of wavering back and forth and evil confessions out of our mouths. I tell you, some of the things that go on in a home are crime against God Almighty. Oh, God is this, and God didn't do it. I don't want to be a guy. I hate this, and I need to repent, confess, get our confessions right and our actions right. Lined up with what God says. Stand up to those things that come into your life. They're for your good. God's allowed them for your good. Then if you do that, it'll be true of you. What the Bible says should be true of you. We know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord who are the called according to His purpose. Let patience have her perfect work. Let endurance work in you fully and completely and perfectly. Now we say, all right, Lord, I want to develop this great quality. I see the value of it. How is it done, Lord? 
Well, turn with me, please, to Romans 5, 3. Now again, we struggle with these things. But here's this same wonderful statement that God makes here. I think I'll read from verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, our Lord, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now we all say, oh yes, I exult in that. Again, the glory of God. See, here's this perspective. Now, verse 3, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We exult. Now, exult means to be lifted up with blessing and glory. Here's tribulations and trials and testing. We exult in them. Hallelujah! That's what James said. Count it all joy when you are hit by the devil and everything he can throw at you that God allows him to do. Exult in it. Philip says in his translation, don't see them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Exult in them. We exult in our tribulations. Why? goes on to explain. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. See, everywhere the testimony is the same. And yet I tell you that Christians again and again and again watch them going through some tribulation and immediately... Many of them are ready to turn tail and run or charge God foolishly, angrily strike out at their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and husbands and children and parents. If this is what it means to be your exult in tribulation, knowing that it brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. See, so we can say, next time something comes down on us, hallelujah, I've been here before, and God gave me the victory then, and He'll give me the victory now. Hallelujah! And you move into it. Perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See how these things are all totally joined. Then, why are we praying that God will take away this test, O Lord? Oh, God, don't let this thing... Oh, God, remove this. Don't you see that prayer is a wrong response to life? Don't you see that that prayer is... If you pray that way, it is destined to keep you a baby all of your life? Don't you see that you will never learn to handle anything of real responsibility? I can't handle it, God. Take it away. I'll backslide. No, God says, I will not let you be tested above that you're able but I will with a test make a way, at the temptation make a way to escape. You may be able to bear it. No, God, I can't take it away. I says, all right, son. Okay, daughter. That's your choice. Now go play in the sandbox again. Maybe you'll be willing to come out of there sometime. Stop building sandcastles or pie in the sky by and by and realize now that you're five years old in the Lord or ten years or fifteen or twenty. It's time to build a house that will endure. It's time that you learn to dig down till you find rock. It's time that you learn to put your house on a foundation that will stand. It's time that you learn to build something that will stand up to the winds pouring against it and the stream beating against it. And build a house that will endure. When are you going to come out of there and stand up to it? See? 
That's why that... Now, God shows you revelation. It says, and here I have it for you that you're going to do this great thing. And you haven't developed perseverance? And we think we're going to do something? With the devil hitting against you and men hitting against you and a world hostile to you and you're, I want to establish Christ in this earth. Who do you think wants that done? The devil doesn't want it done. Men don't want it done. Nations don't want it done. Kings don't want it done. Very rare is the king. Who does? And you're going to go there and you're going to preach the gospel. You're going to come against witch doctrine. You're going to come against black magic. You're going to come against the sin and the wickedness and the intolerable habits of human beings. And you're going to overthrow that in the name of the Lord without perseverance. Oh, God, take that trial away. I can't handle it. Time to say, God, this is heavy. Give me grace. Give me understanding. Give me knowledge. Give me courage. Let me quit myself like a man, like a woman of God. Let me go through it, Lord. Until that quality of perseverance is developed. Cannot be shaken, the Bible says. He that does these things, the Bible says, will never be shaken. Never be moved. Now, the next quality is wisdom. And without wisdom, there is very little to be accomplished in this life. And then we're not talking about shrewdness, cleverness, trickiness. A lot of people are tricky like Satan is tricky, or they're shrewd, like Satan is shrewd. But wisdom is a part of a long-term attitude, a way of acting that may be in the short range totally against your best interest. Short term. But long term, it'll work a work in you, and out will come out of your life a beauty that'll bless thousands. Wisdom. I'm going to talk about the attitude of wisdom. Now, here again, I say, if you talk to people about wisdom, what do you think about wisdom? They say, well, you know, people ought to be wise. That's right. I see that. And people ought to be knowledgeable. Yes, I see that. And people ought to be... But say, well, what's your attitude toward wisdom? Well, it's nice. You know, I think we ought to have it. And uh, I'm not against it. And uh, so, now, that's not the Bible's attitude toward wisdom. The Bible says we ought to have an attitude toward wisdom. I'm going to speak about the attitude. If you'll turn me Proverbs 2. And see that attitude. And we're going to look at Proverbs 2, verses 2 through 5. And this is a father. And that's why I believe, by the way, that whereas Sunday school is important and good and right, that our Sunday school teachers will have one hour a week, and maybe only 45 minutes, with your children. And I want to tell you that there's no way that they're going to impart the wisdom of a lifetime in one hour a week, or 45 minutes a week. That the wisdom of which we speak, and the attitude toward wisdom, is something that the parents are going to have to impart in their children 15, 16 hours a day. By that child watching its mother, and watching its father, and having the father instruct, and the mother instruct the son or daughter in the home. And not just how to wash dishes or saw boards. But instruct the child in godly wisdom. See, here's this father, says, my son, if you will receive my sayings. Now, really, they're God's sayings. But what he means, just like Paul, he said, I have preached according to my gospel. He means he has taken that which God gave him and made it his own. It was God's, it's his. Now, this father, this wise father, is saying, my father taught me, it was his. It's really God's, but he made it his. He passed it on to me. I made it mine. Now, son, I'm passing it on to you. Make it yours. 
if you'll receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you. Now, some of us, our parents, oh, man, my dad. Oh, the preacher, that stuff he's, that thing. I have to go to church because church, I, I wish, okay. or an elder sits down when you read the word of, I've heard that before. Then you look at someone who makes a statement like that, you say in your mind, how much value did that man or that woman put on what I just read to him? He despised it. He disdained it. Sometimes the council of elders, I tell you, these are godly men doing the best they can do. And sometimes they'll speak you out of a heart because they love you. But he said, my son, if you will treasure my commandments. Well, I'll listen to God, but I'm not listening to you, Pop. Or I'll hear God, but I don't listen to man, preacher. If you, son, will hear my commandments and treasure them within your heart. Yes, Father, I hear you. Teach me, Father. See, that has to be the attitude that the child develops in the home. Yes, Mother. Teach me, Mother. Daughter, I speak to you the word of God. Listen to me, my daughter, and your life will be well. You'll find a good man and bring forth good children and have a good life. Son, listen to me. If you walk in the ways of the Lord, all the days of your life will be blessed. He will reveal himself to you and show himself to you. And he will. That's where the teaching should take place, in the home. See how perfectly my wife works with me. I understood she gave the, the women a profound message the other day. She spoke to them in a sister's meeting. What she essentially said is that if your child is 8, 10 years old, they've already spent one half of their life in your home. Another eight, ten years, they'll be leaving your home. Did you impart to them what they need to know for life? Are you imparting wisdom carefully to them? Are you giving them God's word? Are they treasuring your commandments in their hearts? If not, they're going to walk out in this world without the wisdom of God to meet a shrewd devil and a hostile world designed to destroy them. Now God says, Son, value my commandments. Hold them in your heart. Now he gives the attitude that we must have. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Attentive. What's that? That's wisdom. That's God's Word. I want to hear that. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. I want to understand, O Lord, instead of a heart filled with foolishness. For if you cry for discernment, O God, give me wisdom. Don't let me walk out in this world as a fool. Give me wisdom, O God. If you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Oh, what he's saying, what a reward for wisdom. But what is the attitude? God, I want that. God, grant to me endurance. And you tell me it takes trials and testings and tribulations and the devil hitting me and other. Then let him come, Lord. All I ask for is grace and faith and your hand walking with me, but let me go through it. 
See, that's what produces these qualities in a person. I want that wisdom, O Lord. Proverbs 3, 13 to 18. These words, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain than fine gold. I tell you, that is the truth. I know that to be the truth. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. And I want to make a point here. If I may, please. In the Old Testament, the Bible uses the feminine gender to speak of wisdom. She is more precious. Nothing you find. Her value is far greater than jewels. Now, you know what it says about a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. You'll get a virtuous woman that loves God and follows the word. You've got deep well of wisdom in your own home that is right there to give you that wisdom and to pray for you and to stand with you and to impart that wisdom to your children as you are too. A woman that fears the Lord, the Bible says, that's the result of wisdom and endurance and crying out at it. So the woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Her works will praise her. Her husband rises up and calls her blessed. Her children also arise up and say, many have done well, but you see them all, you virtuous woman. You men need to see what you have, and you women need to give yourself to virtue. Deliberate choosing of good and pursuing after wisdom and being an example of enduring under pressure. You don't have the kind of house you think you should have. Don't be a grumbler, moaner, complainer. Why do other people have dishwashers and I don't have dishwashers? Why do other people have good refrigerators and I don't have this? Why do other people have this and I don't have... God forbid that kind of quality produces ashes in the human life. But a man and a woman that can endure under trials and temptations and build together, that kind of woman in the home, if I say her price is far above rubies. What are rubies compared to that kind of a person that is linked to you? And shares her life with you and would die for you and loves you and cares for you. I know for myself, I'm speaking of my wife, and I know there are many other wonderful, virtuous women here. But some I say, examine yourselves. Are you in this place? And you men, are you in this place? Do you cry out for wisdom? And is that what you want out of life? Or are you complaining and moaning and grumbling and the things that happen to you in your life. The Bible speaks here about this holding fast wisdom. It talks about if you have the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of understanding. I was speaking here in our Monday night meeting, and someone asked me, they said, well, Jim, you said that it really doesn't matter whether a person is a carpenter, a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher. Does that mean that they can just go do anything they want to do? I said, no, that isn't what it means. I said, it doesn't make any difference whether a person's a carpenter or a bricklayer or a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher because those are non-moral things. They're just ways of serving people and making a living. So if a person says, well, I feel that I, I have qualities to be a teacher. I'd like to be a school teacher. Fine. I have qualities. I think I'd like to be a carpenter. Fine. One of those is not spiritual and the other unspiritual. 
They're just ways of making a living, ways of serving in this natural, normal world. We're not going to be doing carpentry work in heaven. I doubt we're going to be doing school teaching in heaven either. See, I mean, neither one. There aren't going to be any doctors in heaven, no dentists, no lawyers in heaven. I mean, just ways of making a living down here takes care of this present condition that we're in, the result of sin and the result of the need to serve and reciprocity. So he thought that's a normal kind of a thing. But I said, but how he does it and where he does it and who he does it with are all important. See, let's say a person says, well, I'm going to have to leave my church here and I'm going to have to go someplace else and I'll... Well, what kind of a church are you going to find? Oh, well, I, I don't know, but the school, see, there's a real trivia school. I know I can always find a church there somewhere. No, no, I do it the other way around. I do it the other way around, and the Bible says, and here's what a young man ought to be doing, or a young woman ought to be doing, instead of wondering about, well, I should be this, should I be this, should I be this, should I be this? It doesn't make any difference. That's what I'm saying. But where you do that and who you do it with can make all the difference in the world. The Bible says a companion of fools shall be destroyed. You pick fools for your companions. You go off to some college someplace and you don't know where a church is or you go off to a vocational school or you go off to work someplace and you don't know a good church and maybe you're kind of weak in the faith anyhow and you get there and, well, I should look for a church. I know I should, but, well, I won't this Sunday. I've got a, I've got a, some much homework I'm uh, getting into here now and uh, I've got this job and I'm all tired and, well, I won't go this Sunday and, well, next Sunday you don't go in three, four, five. Time and again I've seen this take place. person move from one place to another instead of getting right into that place where they should go. Instead of going to their pastor and say, Pastor, will you find out what kind of a good church is there and make a contact with me with that pastor and tell him I'm going to be there and give me a letter of recommendation to him so I can... Nothing like that. Just go there. Next thing, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Sundays gone by. No church attendance. And the next thing, you're developing maybe a companionship with fools. And the next thing, they got you in a backslidden condition. And it may be years before you ever get back right with God again. Now I'll tell you what a young man ought to be doing. He ought to be surrounding himself with godly counselors. He ought to be looking and saying, who are the wise men in this church? Who are the wise women in this church? And I'm going to start making contacts with them, and I'm going to start telling them, look, I see the wisdom of God in your life, and I want to start talking to you. I want to hear from you. I want to learn from you. I want to know from you. Can I, when I have a problem or I have to make a decision, can I come and put this before you, and you would give me counsel and wisdom and guidance? He ought to be making contact with the elders. Many of you say, oh man, I don't want the elders around me. Oh boy, they come in. Oh boy. They, no, it should be the other way around. You ought to be running to the elders. How oh, you're my elder. I want to know you. You're my shepherd in the Lord. I want to know you. I want to know your wife. I want to, can I bring my problems to you? That's what we're here for, son, daughter. They, oh, well then I, I want you to know I'm going to be calling you. They call them. I've got a decision to make. I need some help. See? The Bible says, where no counsel is, the people fall. By, Good counsel purposes are established. Where no counsel is, purposes are frustrated. By wise counsel, make war. See, no counsel? Now, how do most people counsel? They counsel with themselves. I wonder if I should do this. Let me see. Is this thing and this thing and this thing? Yeah, yeah, I think I'll do that. That's great counsel. That's a real motivated counsel. Then sometimes we counsel with our wives. Now, in some cases, that's okay. But it's not a multitude of counsel. Though your wife may be a very wise woman, wisdom doesn't mean you always have the answers. She has a perspective. And maybe she's far too close to the particular situation to see it like it ought to be seen. And so the two of you counsel. That's not a multitude of counsel. 
And yet almost all decisions made by husbands and wives are made with the two counselors. What do you think of this thing? Yeah, yeah, I think, let's do it. Like a multitude of counsel. Forget it, man. I'm putting my plans before a bunch of elders knock me down, shoot me down. But I'm not going to have somebody come in. I'm going to open my dirty lid before anybody. I don't need a counsel. I know what I'm doing. I know how to run my life. And then when I was a young man, I said, I know how to raise my children. What a stupid statement. What a stupid statement. You'd almost think like, here's this man who has fantastic experience in raising children. I'm 20. See, you're 22. And I got a child now. I guess I know how to raise my children. Oh, yes, you certainly do, old man of wisdom and experience. Thank you for this imparting this great knowledge of how much wisdom you have here, see? I look back 35, 40 years later. Say, boy, I tell you something, if it had not been for the grace of God, and if you hadn't repented when you did, and even then you went far too long. You put scars and wounds in your children are still working themselves out of you. That anybody with a little wisdom of the years could have said, don't do that. Don't talk that way to your... I was on a place the other day, I just overheard this phone conversation, public place, and the guy was talking quietly. He wasn't that quiet. He was getting pretty noisy, but he thought he was, you know, like you whisper, like, how do I got in his voice like this, see? And I'm sitting there, and he said, well, I'll tell you something, you don't get yourself down here, I'll break your so-and-so, I'll bust you, now that's really, that's really great child rearing. That'll really help your child to understand, well boy, it's wonderful to see how dad handles things in a calm and judicious way and he's able to reason with me and exercises great authority and uh, so forth. It's almost like, well, that's what I told my dad at one point in life. I learned later on because he was a good man really, but he punished me for something. I sat there in a chair like this and I'm looking at him and he says, go sit down in the corner. So I sit there and I said, you just wait till I grow up. I'll fix you good. See, now there's a stupid statement, but I was four years old. You expect stupid statements out of four-year-olds, right? And my dad is standing there, he's walking away, and he turns slowly around like this. He looks at me, and he starts walking like this. And even at four, I knew I'd made a serious mistake. (laughs) But I do want to show you the wisdom I had at that age. I never made that mistake again. (laughs) Hallelujah. Counsel. Surround yourself with good and godly counsel. Surround yourself. Now the next quality is discipline. Time is it. I have to quit here pretty quick, but I can't quit. I've got to finish this. I've got to discipline myself. The word means to train up a child, to educate, to discipline by punishment. That's needed. Tutorage training. This kind of training is imposed by God. And I'm going to speak about different kinds of discipline. There is a kind of discipline that is imposed by God. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews 12. Now, see, we're all dealing with pretty interlocking. That's why I've chosen these particular topics here, these qualities, because they're really amazingly interlocking. Hebrews 12. And we're going to read verses 5 through 13. Now, he's told us here already in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, here we're starting to bring all these qualities in here. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, long-term view, endured the cross, St. Paul again, perseverance, despising the shame, no matter how great those pressures and troubles were, he despised them and went on and did what he had to do instead of crying out to God, man, get me out of here, I can't hack it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when the pressure was very great, he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass, but if not, thy will be done. Not, God, I can't have it, I'm going to backslide. God, if it be possible, no, then amen, Lord. That was his attitude, endurance. And it sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who has endured, saying Paul again, constantly endured, such hostility of sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Develop the same qualities, what he's saying. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation. Now remember, he's talking to Christians, living Christians. He said, you have forgotten the exhortation. Not, well, don't forget it. He's saying, I know you, you forgot. You have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. My son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now we're talking about God-imposed discipline. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges with every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. It is for discipline that you endure. In other words, this quality of endurance leads you on to a disciplined life. Without that disciplined life, you will never get anywhere in God at all. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You must endure this son. You must go on with this son. You must stand up to this son. Sometimes it's a quality. Children, when they're learning, will steal something. Steal something from a store. Bring it home. You say, son, where'd you get that? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I, uh, uh, well, uh, someone gave it to me. Yeah? Who? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> uh, son, where did you get that? I stole it out of a notebook. Okay, son, we're going to take that back. You're going to have to tell Larry, oh, no, Dad, oh, no, God, oh, no, God, oh, Son? We're going down that store. And you're going to look that woman in the eye or man in the eye, and you're going to tell them you stole that. And whatever has to be done, you're going to endure it. But you can't live like this, son. You're not going to grow up to be a thief. Oh, Dad, Dad, please. Please, I'll never do it again. I believe you won't, son, but we're, we're going to go down there. Right? <laughs> tell her. I tell you, if that's handled right, it's going to be the last time he steals anything. If that isn't handled right, if you protect it, oh well, uh, we won't say anything about this. I don't ever do it again. Yeah, I won't, Dad. That's right. I, I'll tell you something. You'll turn him into a thief. I want to discipline you, son. You're going to have to stand up to it like a man. You stole like a man. You're going to have to face the consequences like a man. We're going to go back and face it. See? You know, that's why police forces exist. 
That's why judges and juries exist, to force men to face what they have done. But the Bible says if you judge yourself, you wouldn't be judged. Judge yourself, you did wrong, face up to it. Do what you have to do. I don't want to apologize, I feel like a fool. Better to feel like a fool than to be a fool. See? That's what he's talking about. Now he said, what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Who is that? Furthermore, we had earthly fathers that disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now we're moving on again. See, we're moving right down the plan of life. Here he sends these things into our life. We stand up to it. That develops endurance. That produces discipline. And that discipline leads to his holiness. Which is exactly where we're going. I want to know Christ. For Christ is holy. Be ye holy as I am holy. That's the principle. And all of these things are part of the whole working of God in your life to get you there. Long-term perspective, dealing right with the daily things, allowing that quality of endurance through tribulation and persecution produces discipline, leads on to God's holiness. Final part of this scripture, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Hallelujah. You might limp in the natural because you got a physical problem. But he's saying you don't have to limp in the spiritual. Turn it over to me, son, and I'll give you a soul that's without blemish and without spot as you walk along toward me in this life. Now there's self-imposed discipline. That's Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Preached on this many times. You should read it for yourself. Where he says that, He that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them will be like a wise man. Build his house. Nothing could overturn it. Monetary discipline. Turn with me, please, to Luke 16, 9 to 11. By the way, monetary discipline is at a very important Discipline. Some people have a lot of good qualities. They have no monetary discipline, whatever. I do my best to train people in monetary discipline because absolutely essential to a productive spiritual life. Many people are very foolish with their money, and the result is they never have any developing qualities, whatever, in them. This is Luke 16, verses 9 through 11. I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. Quality. You must, or rather a statement, you must have some of this money, the mammon of unrighteous money, if you're going to use it to make friends. You can't do it if you have no money. So it means somehow you've disciplined yourself to save some, put it aside in the right way, and you use it. I say make yourself friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing. Money is a very little thing. But he's giving a thing here. If you can't handle that, you won't handle too much of anything. Because to most people, though it's a very little thing in God's sight, to most people it's a very big thing. They're always talking about money. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? Somebody says, why doesn't God do this and this and this? How are you handling your money? 
Well, I just get it. I just spend it. I just, I just. Well, you be sure God will not give the true riches to you. He will not. He didn't give them to me. For years and years. I was no sooner getting a paycheck to squander it. See? Then I began to say, that's not what God wants. He wants me to lay up a portion for my children's children. He wants me to be a giver and not a taker. He wants me to be a... I began to see all the things that God wanted out of my life. And monetary discipline was a part of that. Here's a paycheck. There it is, Jim. It's in your hand. Now, that used to be your life. But see, your life is going away at 24 hours a day or a minute at a time, an hour at a time, and here it's going away. Now, question. You can't preserve your life. It's going away. But you can use your life in such a way that it produces certain things that are like a preservative of life. And money is like preserving life. See, it represents your life. And you can take money and you can hand it to another person and command his life and he'll come over here and do what you couldn't do. For instance, I have money and let's say I'm 75 or 80 years old, I can't dig a ditch anymore, but I say to this young man who has plenty of strength, young man, you need money, I'll give you money, dig a ditch. See, and so his life is given back in exchange for this life which I preserve. Now God says, you know what you're doing when you squander your money? You're telling me you're squandering your life. That's how valuable you count your life. You get it? Easy come, easy go. Instead of saying, I'll preserve as much of it as I can to another time, and I'll pass it on as far as I can to my children's children. Monetary discipline. It says, if you're not faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who? Who? It's like you said, nobody will commit to you the true riches. You get nothing if you can't handle your finances well. That's why you need a discipline here. That's why I take time to discipline people in finances. That's why I get so excited when a person says, I see it, and we're beginning to get our financial life in order. We're beginning to put money away. We're beginning to get ready to invest. We're beginning to say, thank God. And it doesn't matter if you're 6 or 60, or 600 for that matter. It's a good time to learn to get that monetary discipline. So that self-imposed discipline is a very, very important thing. The Bible says, Proverbs 13, 22, hear counsel and accept discipline, be wise all the days of your life. They're counsel. So you need to have good counselors. Accept discipline. They say, you shouldn't do that. I want to do it. Now we're going to make me that. Say, I hear you. That isn't pleasant to me. He says, no, discipline for the moment is joyous, but sorrowful. Oh, that hurts. But I know there's a good man, a good woman. My mother's a good woman. My dad's a good man. I hear. I'm going to do it. Accept discipline. Just be wise all the days of your life. Now, next quality here, I don't know how to get through this message, is humility. I see many times so many people, they've even told me, Christians, I'm a proud man, Mr. Durkin. They, they, man, I wouldn't admit that to anybody. Except to God. I'd pray to God to get it out of my system. It says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Because you know what the Bible says? It says, pride precedes destruction. And humility precedes honor. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And in due time, God will exalt you. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, the proud man, in the Bible, that word resists is like draws up in battle array his armies. It's almost like when you say... Well, I'm going to do what I want, and nobody can tell me that. I've got this. And you see that arrogant mentality. Somebody, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I know what I'm doing. Arrogant mentality, proud mentality. Listen, I'm not backing down to anybody. I don't care. I just proud, arrogant, haughty. 
than what the Bible is teaching there in the Greek is God raised his armies against that man until he's broken. Against that woman until they're broken. No wonder so many people remain in the sandbox. Proud to build sand castles. Proud to deal around in the sand. But there's a world out here that's perishing and just waiting for somebody to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and give up all of that baloney. Walk out and say, God, put your holiness and your endurance and the quality of goodness in my life and I'm going to walk out there and do it. Humble yourself. The word is spoken again and again of Jesus Christ. He was meek and lowly. To be proud, the Bible means to show oneself greater than. What's the scripture say? Consider every man better than yourself. See, just the opposite. Well, I'm a pretty important person in this congregation here. Show yourself better than. What is the quality here? Show yourself less than. Because you count everybody as better than yourself. And then the final thing we need to do with those qualities, we need to recap our lives occasionally. We need to review our lives. We need to reflect on our lives. We need to sit back and say, what did I do today? Did I offend someone? Did I wound someone? Did I answer sharply? Did I place an undue burden on someone? I'm going to correct that. God help me. Give me courage. Because I'll tell you what God is saying. He's saying, son, we're going to walk right back where you stole that person's happiness today. And you're going to give it back to them. See, when you were a child, oh, Dad, I, I feel so terrible. We're going to walk right back there, son. And you're going to take what you took away, and you're going to give it back to them, and you're going to say, what can I do to make it up? Just giving it back to you is not right. I stole it. What can I do to make it up? Can I work after hours? Can I give you some free time? Maybe they'll say, oh, no, it isn't necessary. Forgive him, forget it. Didn't understand. It's okay. But we need to reflect on our lives. Well, I said it. I, I'm not going to do that. I just they should have learned our lesson when we were kids. Somebody ought to take us by the hand and say, well, you're going back, and you're going to give it back. But maybe the parent never did that. Then you've got to learn it now. Now your heavenly father is going to do it. He's saying, go back and make that up. Go back and correct that. Reflect on that. The Holy Spirit said, here's what you did. Oh, yeah. Call that person up and make it right. Okay? Then we ought to reflect on our life over a week, a month, a year. Look back on your life for a year. What have you been doing? Is it a productive life? Have you been acting in a disciplined way? Are these qualities developing? Do you have a plan to develop those qualities? Do you have that long-term perspective? And the things you've done in your life are demonstrating that you're working out that long-term perspective? Now, if you don't, then your life becomes an undisciplined mishmash of just one thing after the other hitting you and you're just like this and just whatever circumstance strikes you instead of getting to that place where you're finally disciplined. So, like a warrior, a soldier, when he sees the armies of the enemy line up, he doesn't, <laughs> what do I do? He knows what to do. He's been disciplined. He stands next to the one that's next to him and their arms are locked together and their shields are in place or his hand is upon his weapon and it's forward, march, engage the enemy. <clears throat> Not shake it. Now that kind of army cannot be defeated. So that's what God's building in us. You're to be that kind of an army. Disciplined, trained, humble, gentle, like Jesus, partaker of his holiness, a man and a woman of wisdom and courage, gentleness, humility, kindness, mercy, love. Because that's the last quality. 
unless all of your life is covered by love. The love that it speaks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Then he said, you can have all these things I talked about, but if you have them all and do not have love, it profits you nothing. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I tell you this morning what we want. We want to be like Jesus. I know that's the heart of these people. I know it is. And Lord, even the ones that have been failing, and there have been some and are, but Lord, they aren't going to be failing much longer. And maybe this is the very day they're all going to turn around completely and say, man, I got it, Lord, I got it. You spoke to me today. I'm going to go about developing these qualities in my life. I'm not going to spend any more time rousing and complaining about the trials and tribulations that you send to me. Lord, they're there for a purpose to bring humility into my life and to bring discipline into my life and to bring endurance into my life and lead me on to your holiness, O Lord, so that I can be like Jesus. And then, Lord, when those qualities are developed in my life, I'm going to be able to go out and face the world. No matter what they throw at me, I'm going to be able to carry out the vision that you've given me to do in this life. What you made me for in my mother's womb, the revelation that you give to me, what you show me to do, Lord, I'm going to be able to do it. Because I know how to work with people. I know how to build with people. I know how to walk with you and in your word, Lord. I'll have a disciplined life that plans for the future. I have every area of my life like it ought to be and increasing. Now, Lord, help me not to forget what I've heard here. Help me to go home and study these things out for myself. Lord, I pray here for the church and the home leaders and the elders as they instruct the people in these tremendous truths. Lord, we said in an hour or so here this morning what... Lord, it could take a lifetime of study. And yet it doesn't take a lifetime of study to begin and show tremendous results, Lord. Just an understanding, a determination to do it. And if we fall somewhere along the line to get up again, brush ourselves off, repent, and move on again. Knowing that you're right there to help us, Lord. So bless this congregation now, Father. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.